nearly 1,400 firms globally with combined revenues of $7 trillion already use or will soon implement internal carbon prices, including Microsoft, Ben & Jerry's, and Disney. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions by your hosts, Amanda Griffiths, Ryan Maya, and Maria Virginia Lano. Tackling climate change will require diminishing or stopping greenhouse gases from going into the atmosphere. There are two main policy options to go about doing this. The first is direct regulation. The second is a market-based approach. The regulations set by governments are pretty self-explanatory, but they're also expensive, tedious, unpopular, since it expands government action into direct business decisions. Right. So the idea is that bureaucracy is not a popular notion and how long of a process it takes to create a law and then to create regulations is both expensive and time consuming. Right. On the other hand, the market-based approach has been increasingly seen as a business-friendly and possibly bipartisan way to tackle climate change. The basic idea behind it is to begin to capture the external costs of carbon emissions, costs that the public pays for in other ways such as damage to crops and healthcare costs from heat waves and droughts or to property from flooding and sea level rise, and tie them back to their sources through a price on carbon. Climate change is really one of the most significant market failures in the world, in the sense that it has allowed for very, very harmful energy sources to proliferate cheaply without having to pay for the price of these externalities. The idea of setting a price on carbon is allowing the market to fix itself eventually, but making it more expensive to pollute and therefore disincentivizing these kinds of energy sources. Exactly. So carbon pricing is an umbrella term that can be used for a couple of market mechanisms. One of them is cap and trade, and the other is carbon fee or carbon tax. So with cap and trade, the main difference is you're setting a ceiling or a cap on the amount of emissions that are allowed, and then you're creating a market for emissions within that ceiling or cap that you've placed. So it's kind of like the stock market. And when you're putting a fee or a tax on carbon emissions, that's a set price. So you're not necessarily putting a ceiling on the amount of prices, but you are creating consistency for businesses. It is, it's more predictable for the market. Right. So the way we've seen it now, cap and trade system have been a lot more popular, right? So the European mm -hmm. Union has a very established one, California North and the Quebec. Northeastern st states. Right. And we have Reggie, Reggie with the Northeast in the electric sector. So you see a lot of examples of that. But we also see an example of a carbon price in British Columbia. And as of right now, at least 11 states in the United States have introduced carbon tax or fee bills. So it's definitely mm -hmm. something that's growing in popularity. Also internationally, yes. right? Singapore um, announced that it was going to start collecting a, a price on carbon starting mm -hmm. next year. Definitely. So it seems finding a market-based mechanism for reducing emissions is a popular idea. So today on the podcast, we wanted to dive into that more to see exactly what it means to put a price on carbon, how much progress we've made, where it's expanding, and to really dive into the topic more. Yeah, and this is ex especially exciting for us because our organization focuses a lot of our work in research into carbon pricing bills and strategies, also advocacy for them exactly. in different states in the United States. Yeah, so 
We, if you don't know from the podcast, <laughs> we work for a climate exchange. It's a Boston-based organization, and we work in um, an old church on the backside of Beacon Hill. And we like the fact that we reuse a space. And we think it goes very well with the theme of our organization. And it's got a lot of history. It was around for the revolution and a lot of battles have been fought in and around the church. So we're excited to continue on in our own type of revolution. It was part of the Underground Railroad as well. Yep. Yeah. So it's got a lot of history. Um, And character. Exactly. (laughs) We're proud to work there. And climate exchange itself, we do uh, advocacy. We do education and research into specifically carbon pricing, but we also look into other climate-related issues, adaptation and mitigation efforts, We also have the Climate Action Business Association as part of the organization, and that's a membership-based organization for businesses, primarily in Massachusetts, who are looking to get more involved with climate-related policy, to understand more of what's happening, what its impact is for, for the economics of the region, and how it can impact their businesses, and also because they want to get more involved in taking a stand and pushing for legislation that can help reduce our carbon emissions. And in a way, we have also wanted to take a more pragmatic and realistic approach exactly. uh, to our climate action in the sense that it's not necessarily for altruistic reasons. And we kind of alluded this at the end of the episode last mm-hmm. time. Climate action is something that makes sense for business as well. So that's kind of the approach that we take and having business voices in the conversation and bringing that to Beacon Hill and to other kind of political conversations is very important because politicians always want to have the backs of local businesses. And increasingly, we see that merging with the climate agenda, which is a very, very good development. Exactly. So today on the podcast, we have our executive director, Michael Green, who has been involved in climate policy for a number of years now and has been an award-winning advocate for climate action. In 2016, he received an award from President Obama. He's served as a representative to the United Nations since 2012. He also sits on the board of Boston area nonprofits and is a policy advisor to national business associations on energy. He definitely has an impressive resume. We (laughs) just know him as Mike, the guy who brings his dog Joey to the office every day. In the historic church. And baked treats. Oh, yeah. Sometimes he brings muffins and baked goods in, (laughs) which is always a bonus. (laughs) Definitely increases morale. (laughs) So, hi, Michael. Great to have you here. Great to be on the show, and you guys are off to a great start so far. Thank you. So we wanted to start by talking a little bit about British Columbia. Um, They implemented a carbon tax fee in 2008. It's been widely regarded as a success. The economy has kept growing at the pace of the national economy, and they have been actually able to lower other types of taxes by making it up for this. So is this an accurate picture to paint with carbon pricing? Is this something that we could expect from other places? British Columbia is a really interesting uh, case study to look at when you're thinking about moving forward with a subnational carbon price mechanism. In British Columbia, it was led by their provincial government at the time uh, that there was a whole wave of climate policies across uh, actually the globe at the time to do something about climate change. This was around the Copenhagen negotiations at the UN. Uh, so people really wanted to rise to the challenge. Now, What did they put in place? They put in a carbon price that gradually rose over time. 
uh, started out at a smaller amount. And when it got to, I believe, $30 a ton, it paused. And then they started to do the analysis of really how is this affecting their emissions. Um, What they noticed was that unlike the other provinces uh, in British Columbia, they were actually seeing the largest emissions decrease uh, while also growing their economy, which at the time disproved this notion that you can't take action on carbon emissions and reduce your emissions and still have a thriving and productive economy. They also spent time working on innovation and finding ways that they could reduce emissions from some of the toughest sectors of the economy. So cement manufacturing being one of them, you know, it's extremely energy intensive. Uh, So not only did they grow their economy, but they also found ways to innovate old industries at the same time. So if it has been such a success, why haven't we seen that expand to the rest of Canada? Well, we have in that most recently, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, has asked that all of the rest of the provincial governments come up with their own carbon pricing policy and scheme. Uh, So slowly starting to take effect. That's what has really pushed some of the more fossil fuel rich provinces in the country to actually implement similar carbon pricing schemes as well. Part of an interesting piece of the part of the British Columbia story is also there was a mandate in passing this policy that they would go to other states and surrounding provinces and do education on carbon pricing. So that way they didn't get put at an economic disadvantage or a competitive disadvantage. That's actually what led them to travel to Massachusetts here two years ago and present to our leadership uh, and kind of gave a real booster shot for carbon pricing here in Massachusetts. Right. And so you mentioned a little bit about a really energy intensive industry that was prominent in British Columbia and the innovation that they had to compensate for having a carbon tax in place. How can we compensate for those really energy intensive industries? How can we make sure that carbon pricing is actually not incredibly detrimental to really keystone parts of a state or a region's economy? Well, this is a really tough question you ask, Amanda. And the piece here being that you know, that's kind of the point, right, is to force these carbon intense industries to change their ways. And it's tough to do anything by force in any of these industries, because they want to do it kind of from the inside moving out, not top down from from government. But what we've seen is a lot of businesses are jumping out ahead of the frame and Mm -hmm. trying to implement their own shadow price uh, or doing their own internal carbon pricing. Mm -hmm. And we also need to be reassuring to these industries that we're going to help them innovate that they are part of the economy and an important part. The jobs are an important part. The tax base uh, for a lot of states are extremely important as well. So how can we overcome those challenges, but Mm -hmm. also at the same time bring those emissions down? Right. And so I've noticed, too, from different states' legislation, they are worded slightly differently, and it's not just because different states have... um, different general laws. But it seems that each state is somewhat tailoring its policy towards its structure. Do you see carbon pricing as being a really flexible method for states to reduce their emissions in their own, in a way that isn't too detrimental to their economy too quickly? Yeah, there's a lot of different economic and socio factors that you can take in to advantage. And uh, we've done a pretty great job of covering that on the Climate Exchange website with a most recent piece done by our, our colleague Jonah, 
looking at the question of what do you do with businesses? And, and you know, it's important to keep your eye on the prize here in, in that a lot of states around that same kind of wave around 2008 that we were talking about earlier started putting in or implementing their own climate change initiatives and goals. Mm-hmm. Most jurisdictions took the opportunity to set long-term emission targets. And those earlier targets up front, that 2020, 2025, uh, looking at you know anywhere from 15 to 30% reduction rates, it was easy to start the march towards those emission rates through energy efficiency, electrification, and cleaning up your electric sector. Mm-hmm. Those were the low-hanging fruit. Now, looking at transportation, looking at manufacturing, and other things that are more intricate to our economic makeup of individual states or provinces and countries, it's going to start to become more difficult to reach those long-term emission goals. Mm-hmm. There's not many ways that we can do this without putting a price on a market externality that is carbon. So hopefully this is done with care and with confidence, but there is a fair amount of research and thought that needs to go into how to structure this policy to not shock the market and make sure that you're bringing around these businesses, giving them a seat at the table, but at the same time, not letting them off the hook. Is there a way to think about replicating the British Columbia policy into the United States, maybe in the future as an umbrella, like federally? Or is this something that we will see increasingly happen at the local level? That's a great question. I think that in the British Columbia model as a federal policy could work, certainly. It's definitely something that we reviewed and modeled our Massachusetts state policy after. Mm -hmm. As far as though, how are we going to get to a federal price on carbon? Mm -hmm. I think this is going to take the same pathway as other progressive issues have, Mm -hmm. looking at uh, marriage equality, looking at gun ownership and background check issues, and even, you know, back in the history books of public education, Mm -hmm. uh, where it started in one state, just so happened to be Massachusetts, uh, and then expanded to other states. Healthcare, another great example of that as well. And it's going to be actually the businesses that are trying to operate in several different jurisdictions that are then going to go to the federal government and say, hey, we're beholden to all of these different policies. We need an overarching federal mechanism to at least make a uniform playing field. Right. And that's Similar to some, and we'll see it on the Massachusetts level too, one of the strategies for plastic bag bans or polystyrene bans are if enough local municipal level bans go into effect, there will be a tipping point where it makes more sense to have an overarching state level ban so that companies operating in the state can have a better picture of a larger distribution territory of what they need to be stocking to be in compliance. So it's not a patchwork of somewhat different or slightly different bans in different towns. So I suppose it's it's like that, but on the state to federal level and that jump where it'll just make more sense for businesses to have one kind of solid policy across the entire country versus mm-hmm. a patchwork of slightly differing policies. And it's a kind of related to is, you know, the businesses, a lot of large scale corporate associations have called for a global price on carbon. We can't just jump to a global price (laughs) on carbon. As great as that would be, we need to start with some early movers. Uh, So that's really what we're trying to do here and then eventually scale up to, you know, a federal and maybe even global price. And so that kind of alludes to our, our question 
of how politically feasible is it to have a carbon fee system? How politically feasible is it for a cap and trade system? Can these two coexist in their own kind of patchwork? And But realistically, does one have a better shot than the other? Can they both work together? Like we have Reggie right now. How does that work with a carbon fee in Massachusetts or other Reggie states? So a few things there to, to unpack. First, you know, it is difficult to uh, put a price on something that is going to raise the prices across the economy. We've been able to develop uh, as a nation based on the concept of very cheap energy. Mm-hmm. So increasing that price, of course, is going to have some political blowback. What you need to do is you need to make sure that you're keeping, uh, whether it's um, your your base or your constituents with their eye on the prize, whether that's putting money back into their hand mm-hmm. or reinvesting money back into infrastructure or other opportunities that raise the standard of living for people in your state or in your country. Keep them focused on the opportunity that's being provided by you know putting a price on a pollutant mm-hmm. um, rather than focusing on the challenge of you know costs rising. So it is politically challenging. Now, the relationship between cap and trades and and, uh, general fee, Mm -hmm. we see a continued theme in cap and trade policies that the price is inherently too low. There's really two main aspects that seem to be why people prefer a cap and trade. Mm -hmm. First, the uh, cap and trade scheme makes it difficult for a constituent or a base to point at a politician and say, you increased my prices by X amount. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the, the second piece is that because a cap sets, again, the cap on emissions, it lines up nicely with that long-term emission goals. So they can cap it at that 20% reduction or Mm -hmm. at that 80% reduction and force the market down. Mm -hmm. Where a fee or a carbon tax allows predictability, Mm -hmm. simplicity, and a guarantee of revenue over time. So there's plus and minuses between the two policies, certainly. Uh, one making it maybe more politically feasible, but one making it also a little bit more um, the tax being more effective. Right. So, so yeah, I th- I guess this sounds great and it sounds like a great idea. But can we take a minute to kind of bring it back and talk mm-hmm. about what this would mean for consumers and mm-hmm. families and particularly small and medium enterprises that mm-hmm. kind of don't have the kind of cash flow to be OK with increase in prices like this? For families, uh, what we find is that your energy intensity or your carbon footprint is directly tied to your wealth. The more income that you have, the more likely you're to be going on vacations, the larger homes you're having, maybe you have multiple vehicles, and contrary to what most people think, you also have larger families. As far as businesses, one thing that we hear time and time again from Climate Action Business Association businesses is that they prefer a carbon fee because of the predictability to it. They know that an investment into energy efficiency is going to give them a competitive advantage to other market players. At the same time, they don't have a person on staff that's a sustainability or governance or some other kind of corporate director role that can keep an eye on a fluctuating market price like a cap-and-trade scheme might have or an auction price. So they're able to participate in a fee and rebate system in a way that allows them to do long-term planning, uh, which is certainly to their advantage as well. That makes sense. And so in the future, do we envision a carbon fee or tax replacing existing cap and trade? 
Well, certainly in California during the expansion of um, AB 32 or their cap and trade mm-hmm. uh, program, there was some thought about what do we do to raise the price or add a market floor, if you will, to the mm-hmm. price. And, and the reason being is the policy came with it a lot of promises. Uh, that this was going to generate revenue for the state, for various social programs, for innovation programs. But then when the the market auctions happened, they were underperforming and and over the summer severely underperforming, Mm -hmm. Uh, which then means that revenue's not coming to the table. Uh, So there's one way. I don't think that you're ever going to see one swap the other. But adding a market floor price kind of has that same effect and shows that these things can be compatible. So before I kind of started going deep into carbon pricing and the state of it now, when I envisioned a carbon tax, I kind of figured it would be throughout the economy, right? So if I were to go to the supermarket and buy a water bottle, I would have an added fee on that through the entire supply chain that it took to get it to me on that carbon. Of course, the bills that we have today are not like that. They are mm-hmm. direct use of fossil fuels. But is a more comprehensive tax like the one I had envisioned ever feasible or ever like in the books? Well, what you need to do is uh, in order to make the policy most efficient, you need to cut down on the cost of implementing the policy. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason why in Massachusetts and Maryland and a lot of other states, you put the price on the point of import for the fuel So that's limiting the collection points, uh, and then that's trickling down through the rest of the economy. So you're not going to see that added fee on your receipt, which I think is a good and bad thing. I would love for consumers to see every time they fuel up their vehicle on the back of the gasoline handle, not, (laughs) hey, there's a deal on eggs and milk inside, but hey, you're being charged uh, an added fee because of carbon emissions. But I also think that we we need to be doing a lot of public education and having something on your receipt might help with that. But it's also putting it front and center for people that they're paying more for something. And based on their political beliefs, based on their climate belief, that then can can stir different emotions. So simplicity (laughs) is maybe the best way to go with this and putting it at one point of import. Uh, So you kind of mentioned this briefly before, but internal carbon pricing is something we're seeing increasingly for private firms and companies to kind of put a price or a value companies voluntarily set for themselves in order to internalize the economic costs of greenhouse gas emissions. How do you envision this playing into the broader conversation of greenhouse gas mitigation and how could it influence policy? So the first big movers that started doing internal carbon pricing or shadow carbon pricing, you know, which I think the more I research and spend time with some of these corporate entities, the more I want to break those two apart from each other. Yeah. Uh, because the people who are actually doing a internal fee system, looking at Microsoft, for example, where they actually charge departments based mm-hmm. on their carbon. And it's forcing those departments who are under, you know, a very familiar pressure to reduce costs to do such versus other schemes where it's more of a shadow price. It's more of an imaginary if we had a fee on carbon, looking at some of the fossil fuel companies that are currently doing this, it allows them to understand how they would operate. If this was the, In the political event that case, they had, okay, exactly. Um, so we see a lot of corporations kind of doing that to stay ahead of the curve. 
knowing that this is coming, they've crunched the numbers and realized that there's no way that governments are going to be able to reduce their emissions to the goals in which they've set without having some kind of fee on carbon pollution. It's certainly something that's catching more and more on the large corporate level. But what we're not quite seeing is uh, them getting off the sideline and going and pushing for uh, the policy policy itself. One of the main reasons is because of competition in clients. It's really hard to find a large-scale corporate that doesn't have some kind of relationship to an energy-intensive manufacturing or a client base. And what their concern is, is, okay, if we advocate for a price on carbon, then are we going to have people coming and knocking on our door and saying, hey, my costs went up because of something that you were pushing? Right. Now, what we need to do is we need to reassure those clients or those businesses that kind of have that leverage point on these large corporates uh, that they can do the same and also get out in front of the curb lots, something we're really looking forward to working on going forward at uh, CABA. And kind of stemming off of that, and you did touch a bit on it, but do you think that these companies have altruistic means? Like, do, do you think that they are concerned about climate change and it is more of a moral imperative for them? Do you think it's strictly economically based? Do you think that they are doing it for marketing purposes because that's what consumers want to see, all of the above? And, and does it matter the motivations, I suppose, <laughs> as long as we see the results? I see three main ways uh, and reasons for why businesses are pushing for for carbon pricing or doing internal carbon pricing. The first way is, of course, yeah, getting out in front of the political agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second major reason is efficiency. If you're reducing your energy consumption or reducing your energy costs, you're saving money. And then the third part that seems to be even more and more driving is something that we've heard a bunch over the past year is future workforce and alignment with employee values. So millennial (laughs) workforce, exactly. It's one of the big things of how can I attract the 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 best and brightest talent and appear to have values overlap. The basic greenwashing tactics uh, don't work anymore. (laughs) So they really need to show that their head and heart are, are bought into the same things that this future employee base is as well. Well, Thank you for for stopping by today. We're happy to have you here. It's a great conversation. It's great to be on the podcast. I hope (laughs) that this is the first of many times. And, you know, to all the listeners out there, uh, stay tuned because they've got quite an amazing agenda going forward with this podcast. You're going to hear some uh, great new voices on here. And I, I, for one, really look forward to it. Awesome. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode and thanks for listening. Stay cool.